This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to PupilPod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Silla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. David Corum. Dr. Corum is a comprehensive ophthalmologist and spent 22 years in the Mariana Islands, co-founding the Mariana's Eye Institute. He now lives in Portugal and serves as the Director of Global Ophthalmology at the University of Virginia. Dr. Corum, thank you again for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Silla. I'm looking forward to our conversation. As am I. So let's get right into our case. You are the ophthalmologist tasked with leading a cataract outreach surgical trip in a remote region of a low to middle income country where you will not have access to phaco emulsification. You learn from the in-country team that you will be taking care of the most difficult cases and that most of the patients will have advanced cataracts. Dr. Coram, now we're definitely going to get into the nitty gritty of cataract surgery and the different types of cataract surgery that we um, have to deploy in LMICs. But before we do that, could you talk a little bit about the epidemiology of blindness around the world and maybe specifically tell us a little bit about the leading causes of vision loss? Sure. Um, the WHO uses a classification system where they divide visual impairment into mild, moderate, severe, and blind. And usually when we look at statistics, we're talking about blindness, which is worse than 2,400. But we also look at a category that's called moderate and severe visual loss, which is 2060 uh, and worse. So the leading causes of visual impairment is refractive errors, and that's followed by cataracts. And uh, so we have, in terms of blind, which is really our main concern, uh, or the most pressing concern in ophthalmology, 36 million people around the world are blind, worse than 2,400, and about half of those are from cataracts. Then in terms of other causes, the leading cause of infectious blindness is trachoma, and the leading cause of blindness in the U.S. is age-related macular degeneration. And why is it that trachoma is so prevalent in certain regions of the world? And why? what is the difference between trachoma and the other sexually transmitted chlamydial infections that we see here? Sure. So if you think about chlamydia infections, they're divided by serotypes. So trachoma is caused by the serotypes A through C, and then inclusion conjunctivitis, which is the sexually transmitted conjunctivitis that we see in the U.S. Uh, and in the developed world, is serotypes D through K. And then there's uh, another category that's lymphogranuloma venereum, which is a venereal disease 
that can also have conjunctivitis. That's uh, the serotypes L1 through L3. So those are the broad categories of chlamydia trachomatis. And there's another form of chlamydia that's chlamydia sitachi that's transmitted by birds, often attributed to parrots. And that can also be one of the causes of conjunctivitis, though rare, but it's something that can show up on boards. And it's also associated with the malt lymphomas, the mucosal associated lymphoid tissues. So the question as to um, why it occurs, um, the type of trachoma that we're talking about that causes blindness, the infectious trachoma, is centered in Africa and the Middle East. And it's usually something that's transmitted from eye to eye, but also transmitted by flies. So it's seen in areas with poor hygiene, with overcrowding, uh, with poor sanitation, uh, with flies. And there are about 150 million people around the world infected by this. So that's really the picture that we're looking at and the part of the world we're looking at when we're looking at infectious trachoma that's causing blindness. And what are the clinical presentations of trachoma kind of early on? And then what do we expect to see in these patients as it progresses without treatment? Sure. So, er, you know, in the earliest stages, um, we're looking at kind of your any conjunctivitis. There's, there's redness, there can be tearing, there can be a foreign body sensation, there can be a mu- mucopurulent discharge. Um, but it, the symptoms can be relatively mild and often indistinguishable from any other form of conjunctivitis. But of course, when you're in the part of the world where it's endemic, then that really points you to the direction of what you're looking at. The WHO has a classification And I use the mnemonic FIST-O in order to help me remember this classification. So F is for follicles. So there are follicles on the upper tarsus. The I is for inflammation. So the upper tarsus becomes inflamed. S is for scarring of the tarsus. The T is for trichiasis. And the O is for opacification, the cornea. And it's important to note that that's not necessarily something that's geared towards ophthalmologists, but that's a crude classification that allows healthcare workers in those areas to make a quick assessment of how severe this trachoma is. So that does point us also into really what what the problem is with trachoma, and it is that it causes this scarring of the tarsus. And with that, you get interning of the lid margins and trachiasis, which over time leads to the corneal opacification and leads to the blindness. It's something that doesn't typically occur with the first bout of infection, but as a result of repeat infections over time. So we use the FIST-O mnemonic to remember the sequelae of trachoma infection and the things that we often get tested on on the boards, but that we can also see clinically are that you see that linear scar of the superior tarsus called the art line. And you can also see involution and necrosis of follicles that kind of results in this these limbal depressions that are also an eponym and they are called Herbert Pitts. And you know we love eponyms in ophthalmology. So those are the two kind of classic findings that you see in these patients. But Dr. Quorum, how do we treat trachoma infection? So now, classically, it's just a single dose of azithromycin. 
Uh, so a thousand milligrams is given and it's given in areas where it's endemic once or twice a year uh, to keep the rates of trachoma down. Uh, it used to be that more commonly it was treated with tetracycline orally as well as tetracycline ointments. And that was usually 1500 milligrams divided daily. It used to be that it was treated with tetracycline orally as well as tetracycline ointments. And in some cases that would be replaced with erythromycin. But of course it was three weeks of oral medications, a couple of months of ointment. So it was really difficult in those cases. So it's really a big advance that we now have azithromycin, which is a one-time dose. So for the symptoms where there's irritation, topical lubricants can help. Uh, but the really thing that's critical is the trichiasis. And for that, it's eyelid surgery to get those lashes away from the cornea and to help prevent the corneal scarring. And when corneal scarring has occurred, then it's corneal transplant. Okay, well, that is a great review of trachoma and some of the epidemiology of the issues that we face in global ophthalmology. But getting back to our case and talking a little bit about the surgeries that we often um, use in global outreach, can you tell us a little bit about extracapsular cataract extraction and kind of the difference between ECCE and the more modern manual small incision cataract surgery or what we call MSICS? So classically, extra caps, I, I should actually say that in terms of nomenclature, there are two main categories of cataract surgery. There's intracapsular, where we take the capsule out along with the cataract, and extracapsular, where we leave the capsule behind. So technically, FACO is a form of extracapsular surgery, what we call extracaps or ECC, as well as M6, the manual small incision cataract surgery, all fall within extracapsular cataract surgery. But the way we use the terminology now, we refer to FACO, extracaps, and M6. Just to mention that in case it comes up as a technicality on boards or something like that, that FACO is a form of extracapsular surgery. So when I was doing my training in the early 90s, it was during the transition to FACO. And at that time, we were learning extracapsular surgery. So you would do a fornix-based conjunctival flap superiorly. Um, oftentimes, we would first put a superior rectus suture in to help infraduct the eye when we needed to, to do that particular step. And we'd make a limbal incision, a scleral limbal incision, maybe one or two millimeters back from the clear cornea. Tunnel forward that one millimeter was really more of a shelf than a, than a tunnel. And that incision had to be big enough to get the nucleus out. So it could be seven, eight, nine, ten millimeters. Um, you'd do a can, op can opener capsulotomy, use a muscle hook inferiorly on the cornea to tilt the superior nucleus, the edge of the nucleus up, and then kind of squeeze it out of the eye. It was really quite a, a crude sort of uh, surgery when you think about what we were doing, but it was a great surgery at the time. And then use IA to remove the cortex and put a lens in. Um, and then the, the big issue was you had to suture that wound. That's a big incision, and then it was not self-sealing. And so, of course, there was also astigmatism involved. So the evolution of that in situations where we don't have FACO is the manual small incision cataract surgery. So that actually was developed after FACO. 
And its initial iteration was by an Israeli surgeon named Blumenthal. And um, he called it a mini nuke procedure. So he would put an anterior chamber maintainer into the eye. And it was that fluid going into the eye that would help you get the nucleus out. And so he would move further back on the sclera, make a tunnel that was six, seven millimeters in size, and then um, the anterior chamber maintainer, the fluid going in, would push that nucleus out through this incision with variable success. I remember being pretty excited about this. I was in the islands in the time doing extra cap and uh, trying it uh, quite a few times, but it just sort of the finesse wasn't there. It, it seemed a bit hit or miss depending on the size of the nucleus. Uh, so Sanduk Ruit then further refined that or really developed what we now call M6 or manual small incision cataract surgery. And this is a tunnel, a corneal incision, a partial thickness corneal incision that's made um, two, three millimeters behind the limbus and then tunneled forward into clear cornea a millimeter or two. So you've got um, a tunnel of some length and then the anterior chamber is in size, is entered through the tunnel with a larger internal incision than the external incision. So it's sort of a trapezoidal incision. And um, then the nucleus is taken out through this tunnel. Those are the basic steps of it. But the, the most important feature of this is that if, if it can be, it can be an astigmatically neutral incision since it's fairly posterior and it's a self-sealing incision under ideal circumstances. So it saves a lot of time in terms of suturing an 8 to 12 millimeter incision. This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. That's that's a really helpful history and also the explanation of extracapsular versus intracapsular because I think as a intern and junior resident it's always very confusing and People do really use ECCE to describe the large superior incision, but just remembering that BACO is also a form of ECCE. Can you just tell us a little bit about what it was like at Mariana's Eye Institute when you first got there with very little support? I know you mentioned that you were doing ECCE and trying some M6. What were some of the surgical challenges, or if you remember a funny story, I know that you're a really talented author as well, or just anything that you can share with your younger trainee audience? Sure. Well, when I finished my residency, I really wanted to spend a year or two working internationally in an underserved area. And I ended up at the LBJ Tropical Medical Center in American Samoa. So that was sort of my first uh, stop. And there had not been an ophthalmologist there for 10 years. So it was just amazing in terms of the pathology that I was seeing and the surgery that I was doing. 
Um, I, I think one of the most memorable things initially, you know, coming from the States was being in the operating room and seeing a fly buzzing around. Uh, and I was just in shock. I, I was just dumbfounded that there was a fly and it was sort of like cover the field and what is going on. And uh, the, the circulator said, I'll, I'll get the fly swatter. There was a fly swatter hanging there on the wall. So that was an indication that flies were very common in the operating room. And this was not an, an ophthalmic operating room per se. It was for abdominal surgery, you know, everything that was going on. So the, the standards were really a lot different what you encountered. And I had a lot of those sort of stories that just became pretty commonplace for me. Uh, after a year, I went to Saipan in the Northern Mariana Islands, where initially I worked for the government hospital for five years. And it was really quite a modern facility and still is like any community hospital in the United States. Uh, and after five years working at the hospital, when Mara, my wife, and I wanted to make um, make it home, we decided that would be easier to do with our own practice. So that's when we founded Mariana's Eye Institute. Her background's in health administration and public health epidemiology. So we both left our government jobs to do that with really in full partnership and support of the government and the government hospital. Uh, so it was an evolutionary process. Yeah, initially I was doing extra caps. And um, when I heard about the Blumenthal Mini Nuke, was trying to adopt that and initially was able to buy a FACO machine and bring it up to really modern standards. So we, we have pretty much everything there, maybe not what you'd find in an academic setting, but what you would find in any really well-equipped private practice. And part of the reason for that is that because we are isolated, uh, there aren't really referral sources. I mean, there's not a place, uh, there's not a place for me to easily send cases. And there wasn't for all the years that I was there. So uh, I had to do everything that needed to be done, DCRs and strabismus and cataracts. And uh, the one thing that, uh, of course, we didn't have the capability of doing was um, tractional retinal detachments, which uh, we would send off island, but they had to go far. They had to get on a plane for nine hours to Hawaii or three or four hours to the Philippines. So those were the biggest challenges, supply chain, you know, all of those things that in a, in a global setting, even though the standards of care were really high and we had OCT and now access to ILEA and Avastin and all of that, um, it, it's really the, the isolated nature of it that brings about a lot of challenges and the isolated nature as well in terms of having an ophthalmologist there. So we've been lucky since the time I left. We still um, have been able to staff, staff it with ophthalmologists and we have an optometrist there, but we're always looking for people to help out or who are interested in a year or two of adventure out there. So, yeah, I think those are some of the challenges. I'm not sure if that answers all your questions. No, absolutely. It's it's always really incredible and humbling to work in global health because you realize just how privileged we are. I mean, here, if I see a retinal detachment, I call the retina fellow. If I have a strabismus case, I send them to the strabismus surgery where the surgeon does like hundreds of these a year. And that's the only type of surgery they do. But 
when you're isolated like that, you're really truly expected to be a comprehensive eye surgeon in an era where our surgeries are getting more and more complex and more things are expected of you. So it's truly incredible to hear you tell those stories and hear that you were able to do so many diverse procedures and take care of so many patients. Yeah, it was really an amazing experience. There was an um, orthopedic surgeon we had there, and um, he said something that was typed up, and it's still 20 years later on the wall in the operating room there. And it says, if you have to have everything you need to do the case, you probably shouldn't be here. And I think that really rings true in a global ophthalmology setting is you're just not going to have all the things you're used to and all the things you need. And if it's going to be, it will be challenging, but you just have to be okay with that because you do have to improvise and make do with what you have and do things that um, you may be the best qualified person to do, even though you may not feel as if you are. So it is a real challenge. It's it's so true. I was just in Cape Verde and they don't have cystotomes. They reuse the cystotomes and the ones that they have are very rusted and just like dull, essentially. And we were just like sawing through the anterior capsule to try to start the rexus. So it's it's just an interesting way to practice medicine, but also just like an incredibly beautiful and even creative, you could say creative way to be a surgeon. But what do you see as the biggest challenges and threats to global ophthalmology in the next maybe decade or few decades? What are the, some of the maybe disease pathologies that we should be looking at? What are some of the things that we can try to address as we move forward? Well, I think, you know, at its foundation, um, global ophthalmology is a field of, of global health. And a phrase that Paul Farmer, who was really one of the pioneers in the field of global health, one of the things he emphasizes is that really the, the full term is global health equity. We're, we're looking to establish equity in healthcare, And of course, it's not just internationally, but domestically as well. And over the years, looking at this, the, the question that keeps coming to my mind is again something that F Paul Farmer emphasizes is that disease is not biological, it's biosocial. And so um, we talk now about the social determinants of health a lot and that there are elements of uh, the social aspects of care that need to be addressed. But I've come to see it as really a much larger type of need for global systemic change. And that's related to just why do we have low-income countries and high-income countries? Uh, I mean, you look at any map of global blindness, and it absolutely parallels the income level of countries. And so what that means is that someone born in a low-income country uh, has a certain opportunities that are not available to them simply by being born in that place. So I think... That's the overarching challenge, and the big solution to this lies in that area of leveling the playing field when it comes to the way we've organized the planet, or, or one would argue the way that the planet is disorganized, that we don't have a global system of cooperation that works well, and a system that sort of 
uh, incarnates this principle that humanity is one. If that's the foundational principle of equity and justice, it's not set up that way. So it's a matter of looking at the world and seeing how resources need to be shared. And uh, another thing that I often think of that Paul Farmer brought to my attention was how suffering is distributed. So it's not just how health is distributed, but how suffering is distributed as well. And I think those really take a different form of global organization than we currently have. So that's what I see as the, as the main challenge, but the one that will bring about the more durable results in time. I absolutely agree. I know this is an audio only podcast, but I'm furiously nodding my head yes to everything you say. <laughs> and also just want to take a moment to let our listeners know as well that we lost Paul Farmer this year and it was really tragic for the field of global health. I mean, he was a real pioneer, true advocate. So um, it was a big loss, but I totally agree. And I think that in ophthalmology for a long time, we were practicing global health in this like mission-based approach because we're one of the few surgical specialties where you can kind of do that in a semi-sustainable way where you go in and it's still relatively ethical to operate and leave your patients behind because most of them do so well and there's such a big quality of life increase. But ultimately, as we learn more about global equity and global health, we can no longer go in with these vertical missions. We really need to be integrated into the horizontal global health approach. And we can no longer just say, hi, we're ophthalmology, we're here for the eyes. I mean, we should be taking care of patients in a primary care sense. So I totally agree. Dr. Coram, thank you so much. I just want to summarize, like we do in all of our episodes, what we learned from Dr. Coram today. So while refractive error remains the leading cause of vision impairment worldwide, trachoma is actually the leading cause of infectious blindness. Now, trachoma is caused by chlamydia, and there are different stereotypes. So serotype A through C is the one that causes trachoma-related blindness, while the sexually transmitted inclusion conjunctivitis is actually caused by serotypes D through K. The main clinical findings of chlamydia are a superior follicular reaction that later scars and forms that thing that we call ART lines. You also have these limbal follicles, and those are the ones that were the other eponym or the Herbert Pitts. And of course, the later development of trachiasis from that tarsal scarring. And Dr. Coram told us that wonderful mnemonic FIST-O to, to remember the World Health Organization five categories for disease severity. Now, treatment generally involves a topical tetracycline, and then now in the modern day, we have oral azithromycin that we can give as a one-time dose. As far as the most important global surgeries, ECCE and MSICS allow surgeons to perform cataract surgery without phacoemulsification, and they usually involve the formation of a superior limbal incision or a scleral tunnel incision. The reason that MSICS has gained so much favor in the recent years is that the incision is a little bit smaller at about six millimeters, and those patients generally have a faster visual recovery with less astigmatism, and so they tend to do better in the long term. So, Dr. Coram, before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? 
so I, I think this really um, picks up on the theme I was just talking about. There, there's a writer that many people probably haven't uh, encountered. His name was Shoghi Effendi, and he lived, um, he, he passed away in 1957. Uh, but much of his writing is focused on this concept that if humanity is one, what are the systems that need to be put in place to fully operationalize that? And so I'm very much attracted to his work, and I think it would be fascinating to be able to uh, spend a dinner with him and um, just hear his thoughts and um, have the pleasure of his company. That's that's really beautiful. I've actually never heard of him, so I just wrote a note in my phone to remember to look that up. But I think that overall, that final quote that you're leaving us with and the quote that I think summarizes this episode is that of, if humanity is one, what are the systems that we can put in place to ensure that we achieve that goal? Dr. Quorum, thank you so, so much for joining us and leading us through this episode of The Pupil Pod. Thank you, Scylla. My pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. See you next time on The Pupil Pod.